Welcome to Christ Church Anglican. We hope that you are blessed by today's sermon. If the story recounted in the book of the prophet Jeremiah today sounds familiar, it's because it is. It's a recurring theme throughout the scriptures. The story of the people of God turning away from the commandments of God and following the desires of their own hearts. The results are disastrous. And then in desperation, they cry out to God, and He in His mercy delivers them from their distress. Especially we find this pattern in the book of Judges, which over and over, where over and over we find the words such as these, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asheroth. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer who saved them. This should come as a consolation and comfort to all parents who have problems with their children. <laughs> See, God has problems with His children too. <laughs> he feels your pain. It's part of the pain of the sins of the whole world that Jesus had to bear on the cross. Ultimately, human disobedience goes back to the story of our first parents in the book of Genesis. They were the first human beings to turn away from following the commandments of God. And the tempter says, did God actually say you shall eat of any tree in the garden? Mother Eve correctly answers that God said they could eat of any tree but the one in the center of the garden. Now, it's interesting that the forbidden tree was called the knowledge of good and evil. You might see this as a start of moral relativism, when human beings took upon themselves God's prerogative to say what is true and what is false, what is good and what is evil. In this way, you see, truth becomes my truth, which may be different from your truth or even God's truth. The story goes on to tell how our first parents tried to justify choosing to do what was right in their own eyes rather than what God had commanded. When Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And they could rationalize it like this. After all, we're made in God's image and likeness, aren't we? The tempter says, if we eat the fruit of this tree, we'll be like God. Seems like a quick and easy way to do that. To be what God created us to be. So how can it be wrong when it feels so right? <laughs> now you see, that's not just the story of the first man and woman that ever lived, but the story of every man and woman that's ever lived, including you and me. For example, a contemporary Eve might respond to temptation by saying something like this. I know God says it's wrong for me to have sex with my boyfriend before the commitment of marriage, but how can it be wrong when it feels so right? A popular song even uses this to, uh, reasoning to justify adultery. It goes like this. When I hold you close, it makes me feel so warm, and we'll slip away and be together tonight. How can this be wrong when it feels so right? Rationale can also be used to justify stealing or as in cheating on your income tax or 
taking office supplies from your place of work for your own personal use. And addicted persons use it to continue in their addiction. They say, just one drink, one snort, one injection shouldn't hurt me. Or just one gamble on a sure win, or just one glance at pornography. In every case, it makes oneself an exception to the rules. For how can it be wrong when it feels so right? And once we start down this path, it tends to snowball into ever greater wrongdoing. As one preacher has frequently said, sin always takes you further than you want to go, costs you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay. Now, it looks like even the Pope has taken upon himself the authority to declare what is right and wrong in the area of sexual morality. And his approved statement, even though it denies that there's any departure from the scriptures or the revealed tradition of the church, leads to confusion and chaos rather than clarity. The author of 2 Timothy saw this coming when he wrote, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate to themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. In his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman writes, the modern self is one who, where authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with one's inward feelings. And combined with moral relativism, which believes there's no objective basis for moral truth, you can see how this worldview exalts the self over any concern for God or others and lessens one's commitment to family, community, and nation. Since right or wrong is determined what, by what I feel to be right or wrong, how can it be wrong when it feels so right? An emailed article by former Midland pastor Jim Dennison refers to a recent poll that asked Americans about values they consider very important. Contrasting responses made to a similar poll in 1998. The results, patriotism went from 70% versus 38% today. Religion declined from 62% to 39%. And having children from 59% to 30% today. Jim is a personal friend, and he told me when we were at 2900 Princeton that he would be an Anglican today had the Baptist church not first picked him and his brother up for Sunday school and church when they were growing up in Houston. So this Anglican Baptist, I want to recommend to you his email devotional entitled Denison Forum. In it, he applies biblical thinking to critical or to current uh, cultural events. And it's sent daily, Monday through Friday, to over 60 million people worldwide. And you can subscribe to it for free. From the poll he quotes in that recent column, you can see how far we've come from the values of the so-called greatest generation, who sacrificed so much to oppose the evils of Nazism and preserve the freedoms that we so much take for granted today. It's why an overwhelming majority of adults today, 78%, say the country is headed in the wrong direction. And I believe that a great part of the blame for this can be laid at the doorstep of the church. 
as the scripture says, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Just like in Jeremiah's time, it began with the chosen people. After all, we're called to be salt, light, and leaven in the societies of which we are a part. Salt not only gives good flavor to food, it also acts as a preservative against decay. Light dispels darkness. And we know from the scriptures that the light that came down to the earth at Christmas always wins. It continues to shine in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it and will not overcome it. And Jesus calls us to let our light, which is really his light, so shine before others that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Finally, leaven, even a small amount of it, can act as a a pervasive influence that modifies something and can transform it for the better. So Jesus' parable in this, he's showing that how the kingdom of God that we pray may come on earth as it is in heaven can grow from small beginnings in a human heart that submits to his lordship. And then as it, sp- as it spreads to others, it can have a profound impact on the society in which Jesus' followers find themselves. Even in the Acts of the Apostles, they said of those early Christians, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Famous historian William Lecky credits particularly the Christian beliefs in the sanctity of life and the brotherhood of man as having profound impact upon the pagan world around them. Because of this, these beliefs, they opposed abortion, rescued babies who were left out to die, founded hospitals, and cared for the sick and dying. They ended the gladiatorial games, which were going on even after the Emperor Constantine made Christianity a legal religion, and after the Emperor Honorarius made it the official religion of the empire. And this is how it happened over 1,600 years ago this month. After Roman victories over the Visigoth chief Alaric, the games were scheduled on January the 1st, 404, to celebrate. The defeated prisoners of war were to maul and slaughter each other for the amusement of a cheering crowd in the 50,000-seat Colosseum. This was sort of like the NFL of the day, (laughs) although in this case, the participants were uh, to inflict more than head and knee injuries, but to fight to the death. But any survivor could win back his life and thus avoid execution. Well, on this day, however, an Eastern monk named Telemachus had come into the city from the desert, and he was appalled that this event was taking place in so-called Christian Rome. So he got down on the field and tried to get between the combatants, imploring them to stop. The fans were not happy, and according to the early church historian, Theodoret, they stoned him to death. So the gladiatorial games, which had gone on before for over seven centuries, abruptly ended at this point. See, Jesus Christ has had such a profound effect on world history and Western civilization in particular that until recently, all time used to be dated by his name. Perhaps you can remember that. When it was either B.C., 
before Christ, or A.D., Anno Domini, the Latin for the year of our Lord. As the poem that frequently appears on Christmas cards puts it, all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever set, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. In addition to the contributions already mentioned, Christianity gave us holidays, which comes from holy days, and gave us Sunday as a day of rest and worship. Probably that commandment is the one that's most uh, not kept today, is keep, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. It have elevated the status of women and children. It founded kindergartens and schools and universities, including some of the most prominent ones today. Sadly, many of these that were started by the church have become totally secularized. At a conference several years ago that was discussing how so many of these church-started institutions had lost their formerly Christian character, the president of SMU was quoted as saying, well, SMU may not be a Christian university, but it's definitely a Methodist one. <laughs> and just this year, I read where TCU, Texas Christian University, which has a tuition that is thousands of dollars greater than Harvard's, is now offering a course on drag queens. So much for higher education. So Christians were also prominent in ending the slave trade and slavery and in the fight for civil rights. All of this came at considerable sacrifice. Reparations for the sin of slavery were paid in blood during the Civil War by Union soldiers who marched to the tune of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Civil rights workers were also jailed, injured, or killed in nonviolent protests and marches. And during the Montgomery bus boycott, black citizens for over a year walked to work or gave rides to each other. And unfortunately, many pew sitters in the churches in that time were opposed to the writing of these wrongs. The prophet Jeremiah recognizes that the vocation of the people of Israel is not just for their own benefit. They're called to bring light and blessing to the nations. Abraham is told, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And in the book of Deuteronomy, the chosen people are told, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people. And not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving out from before you. And this is why it's so important that God's people remain faithful and obey the commandments as an example for others to follow. As Abraham, there and our forefather in the faith, is told, it's only because you have, have obeyed my voice that the nations will be blessed. And when the people of God, by the grace of God, but when the people of God, by the grace of God, recognize and confess that they perverted their way, and forgotten the Lord their God, these gracious words are spoken by the prophet. Return, 
O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. See, the familiar story in the passage from the book of Jeremiah is not just the recurring story of the people of God's disobedience. It's also the recurring story of God's steadfast love and mercy that we see throughout the scriptures. Their propensity to disobey is shared by all human beings. As we've heard the psalmist say today, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, oh, Lord, who could stand? But then he goes on to say, but with you is forgiveness that you may be feared. See, the best deterrent that parents have with their problem children who are tempted to do something that's injurious to themselves or others is for the child to recognize that if I do this, I will not be just breaking a rule, but I'll be breaking the heart of my parents. It's even more so like that with God, which is why the psalmist is moved to say, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. Thus, when Jesus calls us, as he called his first disciples, to repent and believe in the gospel, we can respond. Revive your church, O Lord, beginning with me. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, feel free to visit us online at ccanglican.com. We hope you will join us again soon.